the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good Saturday afternoon, everyone out there. Uh, rain's gone, and uh, yeah, it's going to stay cold. It, it, they're saying we could get one of these systems every week. Isn't it amazing? Go from years where it's 60 degrees through the winter and then others where it's <laughs> like this one, 40s. I like it, though. I like to get the cold out of the way. I like to get my all, all four of my seasons in. You know, sometimes you can get two or three in one day here in South Carolina, but I like to get I like to get a good dose of all of them, and hopefully, you know, if, if if things work, maybe we'll get spring that lasts, I don't know, six weeks? Kind of be nice, like mid-March to late March, go all the way through April into May, maybe? And by the time kids get out of school, everyone wants to hit the beach, maybe it'll be hot then. <laughs> I uh, I have a, a friend who just, just hates winter, and this, I mean, the first time it gets below 60, she is... Uh, She's ready for summer again, and I was like, "No, no, come on, we got to enjoy all four seasons. We get them all, might as well enjoy them." And uh, I do, I really do. But anyway, thanks for tuning in and listening. Uh, just me today. Sorry, uh, a lot of you just shut your radios off. I don't want to listen to him today. But anyway, uh, no, it's just me today, and and it's going to be a little different. My voice has been giving me problems, so right now it sounds really good. I've been sucking on. Uh, it's just two things that carry me through the winter. Airborne, uh, I take them, man, I take them all the time. Um, I think you take up to three a day, and most days I take at least two. And uh, if I'm not feeling good, I'll take three. And I'm telling you, it's I, and I know what is, there's some others out there and all, but but airborne, I've uh, I have been just it's just one of the staples of wintertime. And the other is uh, Ricola cough drops. And interesting enough. When I go to the deer stand, I'll take Ricola cough drops and just, you know, kind of shove it over in the corner of your mouth, you know, outside your teeth, in your cheek or whatever, and just leave it there. It, it keeps me from coughing. It keeps my mouth from drying out, throat drying out, which leads to coughing, in my case anyway. And uh, it's just really good. So that's, it, you know, for whatever it's worth, that's just two things to that. So I've been, I've been uh, hammering on some Ricola uh, this afternoon and, and hopefully, uh, hopefully it'll hold out. But it is going to be a little different. Taylor's not here. She's under the weather. Um, you know, y- y'all remember what it was like when you were 17, a senior in high school. And as my mom put it, you burned the candle at both ends and in the middle too. Yeah, well, she's been burning the candle at both ends and the middle too, and it caught up with her. And you know, it's, as a as a parent, you can say, "I told you this was coming." We had this conversation Monday afternoon, and uh, it got her this week, but. You know, it's uh, kind of fun to say, I told you so, and who's right, who's your daddy, you know, that sort of thing you give your kids grief about. But anyway, I, I've got a calendar of events, uh, and there's there's something that's been kind of, I don't know whether it's old age maybe, um, having a grandson. 
I don't know, but I, in the past we've done some of this, and it, this show has, has been. I hope it's been fun. I, we have fun doing it. Guests tell me they have fun coming on, and they keep coming on. So maybe you know, maybe they know more than I do about it. Uh, but at times I bounced off conservation, and we've talked a little bit about the North American model of conservation. We've talked a little bit about fair chase, and I want to get into more of that this year. But I want to this year. Maybe it'll take me into next year because i got so much going on this year already. But this is kind of with, with Taylor out. We didn't have a guest scheduled today anyway. And um, I want to I delve into a little a little bit more of, of what it means to be a hunter, what it means to be a fisherman, a conservationist, what our minds are like. And it's one thing for me to sit here and tell you, well, this is what I think when I do this, and this is what I feel when I do this, and this is why I do this. Ah, that's, that's just me. That's and who am I, you know? But uh, I got in some time last week, week before last. Uh, I actually watched Stars in the Sky, which is a, a movie that Steve Rinella, uh produced. It's uh, 69 minutes long. It's really good. It's got Steve Rinella, his brother Matt, and his other brother. can't remember his name. Joe Rogan's in it. Uh, a couple of conservationists, uh, a, a, a vegan Kind of anti-hunter dude is on it. And it, it was really good. I, I don't watch hunting shows or fishing shows. I watch, okay, I watch Bass Live and Major League Fishing Live, but I don't, I don't really watch hunting shows or fishing shows. I, I hate to turn hunting and fishing into NASCAR commercials. Uh, and, and, and uh, frankly, a lot of hunting and fishing shows build up such expectations that most people either can't afford or will never have the opportunity to. And I just, ha- I hate hate that. Uh, my, I like to kind of be two feet on the ground and, you know, and I, I guess you can watch some of that stuff and it not be that way, but I'm just, I just don't have time to watch it and I choose not to watch it. I, I take that back. A few times I'll, I'll watch Jim Shockey's Uncharted or something because it's just, part of that's the scenery. And I have watched an episode or two of Meat Eater, you know, it's on Netflix. I think they just, I think it's been all over. They just released season 10 or something. Um, so, you know, but, but we're gonna, I, I wanna, I've got some clips. Uh, the next, the second and third segments, I'm gonna go through, and they're not long. Two minutes, I think, is, is the longest one, two minutes. This one took a little time. Uh, two minutes and 52 seconds is long. They're between a minute and 2.52. So it's not long segments. We're just kinda teasing, um, Stars in the Skies. It's on Netflix. I was, I was in, I liked it. Um, it needs to be twice as long and go twice as deep into some stuff. But like I said, I don't know if it's age or, or what, or, or having a grandson, or and, and of course having Taylor and introducing her to it. Now hopefully I get to introduce a third, you know, well, I guess if I'm the first, second, second generation after me, third generation, um, to hunting the outdoors, fishing, what it means to be a conservationist and all. I want to get into a little bit of that this year. And I'm not, don't worry, everybody, I'm, it's not going to be every week. It might be once every three months or something. I do have, I do have an idea that I'm trying to do that would be seven segments, but they wouldn't be full segments. It would be like maybe five or six minutes of a segment and spread over a year. That's not much considering there's what, 200 segments in a year. So it wouldn't be a whole lot, but, um, you know, it would be, it would take some time and it would take some effort. And I just, I just, for some reason, excuse me, I'm going to stretch and read something over here. I forgot. Um, it's just something I want to do and I'm going to do it if I can this year. 
Might not get all of it done this year, but I'm going to get some of it done. At least going to start on it. And I hope you'll, I hope you'll, you know, if you're not a hunter, if you're not a fisherman, if you're not a, you know, you don't consider yourself an outdoors person. I hope you enjoy this because it, it's, it's. I'm just trying to give you a window into what it's like. If you already are there, I hope you enjoy it because it just reinforces what you and I know uh, about what we do um, and why we do it. So, but anyway, the second and third segments, we're gonna we're gonna just drop some cuts, cuts, cut one and cut two. Uh, I think you know I'm real simple. I got cut one through eight. Some of the shows that I have listened to in the past, and I cut 42 and all. I'm like, good gosh, you got 42 sec, 42. <laughs> no, I'm, I number mine, you know, one through eight, and just be done with it. <laughs> but uh, it, it's good. I, 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 like I said, I, I really enjoyed watching it. I'll probably watch it again and, and probably get more out of it the second time around. If you haven't seen it, Stars in the Sky. It's on Netflix, 69 minutes long, so it's not that long. Um, but yeah. Now, I think the last hunting shows I ever watched were like the Incomplete Deer Hunter sort of thing. <laughs> and I guess I did watch some Kurt Gowdy and stuff like that when I was younger. But I just I just don't have much use for for modern TV and, and hunting and fishing that's on there. Um, and frankly, a lot of those people and influence and all, you read about them being arrested for breaking laws and... Because that's what it takes to to monetize hunting and fishing, and I hate that more than anything, and and making a, a competition out of it. How's that for an old man rant? All right, hang on. We'll be back after the break, and I promise you it'll be fun. Just hang in there with me. Hey! You make me come alive. I've never felt so free. Can't get you off my mind. Get outdoors in this top southern destination. Your family will come alive in Lake Murray country. Come explore our fishing, award-winning food scene, experience our rivers, and family fun. Visit LakeMurrayCountry.com and book your outdoor adventure today. Well, just just to well, welcome back. First of all, thanks for staying in there. Thanks for uh, not shutting me off. And you know, it's funny. This like takes me back to 2018. Taylor has really been on this fairly regularly since winter of 2018. So a little over two years now. So when I'm here by myself, it's it's very different. It's it takes me back to. <laughs> A while back, you know, I used to script the show out. When I first started, and I've got boxes up upstairs, I had everything written out. I wrote a whole show out, <laughs> like the first year. It was horrible. I, I, if anybody is still listening for 2014, like, I probably owe you something, money or, or something for sticking in there, because it was pretty rough back then, but... uh and it may still be bad. Who knows? But anyway, thanks for hanging in there. Uh, so lest, lest uh, I just come off as a, 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 you know, an old guy, whatever. I, it, I ran across. I always run across stuff like this, and I wish you could see this. I wish part of this was live. But a dog's uh, where I could have it on YouTube or or, or uh, Facebook. But a dog's guide to backyard mammals. <laughs> Sophie, she's laying over here, and she just looked up. Sophie's got arthritis, by the way diagnosed this week or last week uh so 
Diet change, got to lose 10 pounds, uh, arthritis in her back. And uh, diet change, uh, I'm giving her fish oil tablets. And no more uh, four- and five-mile hikes like we have done. So, anyway, but she, she just looked up. This, this is totally Sophie. This is just funny. And I'm probably going to wake her up with this last one when I yell it out. But anyway, uh, it, it's got some pictures. And the first one's a, a bat. It says floppy chew squirrel. Uh, got a groundhog. It was buck tooth pig squirrel. Um, got a big rat. Sneaky plague squirrel. <laughs> uh, possum is danger squirrel. Um, a raccoon, he's a mass garbage squirrel. Uh, a mole is an English garden squirrel. A uh, porcupine is a stabity squirrel. A uh, rabbit's a, a boing squirrel. Chipmunk, he's a ziggy striped squirrel. Uh, uh, <laughs> and I smell one of these at the moment when I'm out. A skunk, uh, he's a stink squirrel. And then just your regular gray squirrel is Sophie. Sophie, hey, squirrel. Where's squirrel? <laughs> she, she has a thing for squirrels. Uh, one day she might catch one. You know, she's ten and a half now. One day you might catch a squirrel, Sophie. You, you're kind of slowing down on me a little bit here. Yeah, you are. Uh, one day. You still have hopes for catching one, right? Yeah, good girl. Um, so anyway, let's, let's get started on this. Like I said, this is, this is, um, this is, uh, Stars in the Sky, Steve Renella. And I'm just going to play some clips and then, you know, maybe offer a little commentary, maybe ask you what you think. And this, this is, like I said, if you're not a hunter, Listen, it, it might open your eyes. If you're contemplating being a hunter, maybe this is the type of hunter you want to be or some of the things you need to be thinking about. Um, anyway, here we go. First one. Increasing to 25 knots. Sea is 9 feet. Rain. Tonight, south wind 20 knots. Sea is 9 feet. I became a hunter for the same reason that most hunters do, because my father was a hunter. It tends to move along like that, along a line of patrilineal descent. My father hunted, his father hunted, my maternal grandfather hunted. It was what we did, it's who we were. And it's important to mention here that I was introduced to it as an act of love for the natural world. I know now that that sounds suspicious to some people. This idea of hunting as a manifestation of love for the land and its animals. They might reasonably ask, wouldn't it be the opposite? Wouldn't it be an act of aggression? You know, it is. There's, there's, a, and he in this, in this, in this movie, he addresses. You know, there is a violence aspect to hunting. It's not violence, human, human, but it is violence nonetheless. I've said it before. You know, there's no catch and release in hunting. But it's funny he talks about that. I know there's a lot of people out there that that learned it from their grandfathers and their dads and all. Now, I did learn fishing from my granddaddy. That's, but the hunting. Um, you know, my, my my mom's dad, I don't remember him hunting, but, yeah, he grew up in the country, and he always had a gun around. Um, but, I, you know, I grew up because of a neighbor, Ken Fleming, who 
whose uncle had given him a bird dog. And we had plenty of quail at that time. And, you know, I was five or six years old. He just let me tag along. And that's how I became a hunter. Everything I learned about early in life about hunting was from behind a bird dog. <laughs> Looking at a bird dog's butt for the most part. Um, and, and that's how. But it's, it's, I know a lot of people out there came through that, that family generational hunting. And, and that's, uh, and it, but you don't have to. Uh, I'm, you know, my brother and I are proof. You don't have to have that. But, and Steve Ranella, that's, and he says, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine not being a hunter. And so is his brother, his brother's in this too. And he says the same thing. He says, I don't know that I could not be a hunter. Interesting. Hey, let's, let's keep going. I'm open to discussing this with anyone who cares enough to share their thoughts. Though I have no illusions, there will always be a rift between hunters and non-hunters. Stephen, don't you think these animals you've killed want to live as much as you or I do? In fact, isn't this just a rationalization for murdering innocent creatures? To shoot innocent animals, animals that have beating hearts, that run from you simply because they want to live. They're not armed with copper bullets or lead bullets. I think you're not really asking a question, you're making a point, but I'm going to answer like a question. I would say that if you, if you look at the grand spectrum of, of species on this planet, you'll, you'll not find many that, that don't prey on other kinds. People say generally, behaviorally and anatomically modern humans have been around for maybe 75,000 years. On this continent alone, people hunted for 15,000 years, notwithstanding the last couple hundred years. So to not hunt is a fairly new experiment in a human sense. To ask a wolf not to hunt anymore is an impossible question. So if someone comes to me and says that they don't want human hunting, we don't want to hunt, I kind of am like, coming from what perspective? The no. life is sacred. Yeah, I, I know that life is sacred. I admire the deer but I admire the idea of deer more than the individual deer. And I can assure you that I know more about deer than you ever will. And I've learned that through hunting for them. And I probably care about them in a way that's deeper than something you're gonna experience from having a removed perspective on it. The rift between hunters and non-hunters, it's been around since biblical times. My hope for the future would be that people who don't hunt would come to recognize hunting is a positive force. What tricks people up in recognizing that is the contradiction that I return to all the time. You love animals and you kill them. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things that as a hunter, you learn more about a hunter, an animal, or whatever you're pursuing. You learn more about it by pursuing it, and more often failing anything else than most people will ever know. He's right about that. And if you if you are a hunter, you know that. If you want to, be, if you if you're thinking about hunting, you'll quickly figure that out. You need to study. It's hunting is a learning. Us, you you learn every time you're out there, and you learn. Uh, you know, it's conservation. It is 
you want that animal there, so you do what you can to make sure that animal is going to be there. Um, fish, bird, whatever it is that you're after. Um, God, there's a lot there. Um, and I love how he doesn't dodge it. You know, you know. Look, they're anti-hunters. I, I understand. I understand. Um, but we can we can coexist. We can all get along. And, and hunters have a we're in a a balancing act. Nature will nature will create an imbalance left to its own. It it's either too much game, not enough habitat, or there's predators and not enough game, and then the predators slack off, the game comes back, and you've got the pendulum swing to the other side. Too much game, not enough habitat. So it's and, and where we have to where hunters fit in is. It is the balancing act. That's that's why you have you know seasons and limits and all that because we have to balance our input in the whole setting of nature. Um, gosh, he said he said so much in there um, that uh, you know you can chew on and. And, come to, and and all hunters are not going to agree on everything. You know, we talk about this idea of fair chase, and it's and, and we go, he goes into a little bit of, of that. It's got to be every hunter decides for himself. And um, but you know that that was in a bookstore. That that little clip came from a bookstore. He was on his book tour, and that was a question to the audience. And he doesn't shy away from it. And there's no we there's no reason to run for it from it or whatever. We uh, you know we have to. We have to live in the here and now. So you have to address these things. You can't run from it. Which means you better know you better know why. The why of what you do. Because uh, it's you're going to get asked that question. And you're going to have to de- not defend it. You're going to have to explain it. And you need to try to explain it in a way that... Whoopsie. <laughs> I messed that one up. Uh, you're going to have to explain it in a way that people can understand. And hopefully relate to. You know, it's... You've got a eight percent of the population that supports hunting. That that are hunters, eight percent that are anti, and and we're all vying for the eighty-five, eighty-four, eighty-six percent in the middle, who support hunting for you know recreation and, and meat and all to the tune of eighty percent. When you drop that to sport hunting, well, I mean not sport hunting, but trophy hunting, and there's all sorts of definitions of trophy hunting too. It drops to twenty-five percent. So, interesting. All right, y'all hang on. We'll get a little further than I didn't get as far as I wanted to. We'll have to make that up in the next one. So, y'all hang on. More Woods and Water, South Carolina on the other side. You know, they, they did, uh, much like many groups, the Doobie Brothers did a live, um, a live concert in one of these little small bars or whatever, music venues or whatever. And it's a great one. It's on YouTube, but, uh, there's, there's nothing better than the Doobie Brothers. So let's, uh, and if you just tune it in or whatever, we're kind of doing, um, 
uh, some clips out of Stars in the Sky, Steve Rinella movie that he made, and uh, let's get back to it. Ah. There we go. The fact that hunters themselves acknowledge that there should be a sportsman's-like way to dispatch, say, a deer, that speaks to the fact that they believe that there's a moral and ethical aspect dimension to that act. Animal ethics, in a nutshell, is to have more people recognize that you're dealing with moral beings, not just objects. Human beings were always thought to be superior, not only intellectually and physiologically in certain ways, but morally. This is a view known as human exceptionalism. And that claim starts to be challenged. The question in animal ethics, it's what makes all human beings morally superior to every animal on the planet? Why is it this way and, and should it be that way? And that's a tough question to answer. The actual killing of an animal, the finality of it is hard to describe but you've done something that you can't undo what does go on between a hunter and his prey <coughs> the biologist E.O. Wilson popularized the term biophilia the idea that humans have an innate desire to connect with nature and other forms of life. Hunting can bring about an extreme form of that. Let's say bio-obsession. Where the continued study and pursuit of animals brings about in the hunter feelings of deep admiration, a desire to emulate, and yeah, something akin to love for the animals that they hunt. Big words. You know, he 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 uh, uses some stuff you got to think about and 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 uh but there is. There's a love for it. Every time I go deer hunting, I love seeing them. I may not shoot them. I love seeing them. I love watching them on the side of the road. It, don't don't be behind me on a two-lane road if there's wildlife around. I will slam on brakes, pull over to the side, whip out the camera, and you know, sit there as long as they're there. And I think I think a lot of a lot of hunters are like that. We love watching them. We'll spend hours watching them, in season or out, doesn't matter. We love the animal. We love to watch them, and you learn a lot by watching them. So anyway, folks, not so bad. Y'all, hey, hey, here's some more. Let's let's uh, listen to another clip. These wild animals have a social and cultural value because of what they represent. They represent a social cultural commitment to their existence, and the fact that we have worked so that they can coexist with a civilized society and still remain wild, and that has given them a value.
The European method of wildlife management attached wildlife to privilege or property. You could get hung for killing the king's deer. One particular code in England was that uh, if you should take so much as a hair, you shall have your eyes torn out. By virtue of the Declaration of Independence, where the people became the sovereign, those rights and privileges that belong to the, the royalty passed to the people, and they would be held in trust for the people by the states. The irony is that before and after our decision about who owned the wildlife of this country, we were systematically eliminating. Lewis and Clark came up here in 1805 and 1806. They described that wildlife resource as a resource that exceeded anything the eye of man had ever looked upon. Just the sheer abundance of wildlife that was out on the Great Plains at that time. Eight decades later, it had fallen to zero. We had become the wildlife boneyard of a continent. And that's having to do with the buffalo. You know, they were hunted almost to extinction. Market hunting. You know, there was a demand for not only the meat, but the furs. And uh, And that's where you had a... We came to a crossroads here in North America, or in the United States, about how we're going to treat our natural resources. Um, I don't know, you know, he, he talks in there, mentions, a, you know, animals have value, and, and animals you see weren't always there. You know, in South Carolina, I don't, you know, for those of you that aren't from here or don't know this or whatever, you know, for for centuries, I guess, you know, when this country was founded or explored and and we settled here and all, you know, the the deer population in South Carolina was in a very narrow corridor, corridor along the coast. And you heard swamp bucks and all. That's because that's where they lived. They lived in the swamps along the low country of South Carolina. They were not spread all over the state like they are today. In the 50s and 60s, we uh, while many states were importing and bringing in deer from other states, we went down to the low country of South Carolina. We... Uh, trapped South Carolina deer. We brought them up into Sumter National Forest in the 50s and 60s. And we stocked them in the Sumter National Forest. You know, I grew up probably 20 miles from the center there around, you know, from Lockhart to Whitmire, you know, the the center chunk of the Sumter National Forest there. And it took, you know, if they say they started in 55 and stocked through 65, it took Almost 20 years for those deer to populate, and they, and I'm not saying they populated in concentric circles or anything, but, you know, before they got to us, probably 1972, I saw my first deer, and we were 20 miles from, you know, probably this, maybe the center of where they were released in Sumter National Forest. Took them that long to, to spread, so, you know, almost 20 years, and then from there it was an explosion, you know, from, well, I say the explosion. Yeah, from '72 to the mid '80s, you know, you started seeing a few, and um, but it took a while. And then you had the then then you had that nature thing. You know, we had lots of habitat. My goodness, the if you go back and research any of this stuff, you had the the, the perfect storm of habitat. You had uh, logging, 
which you know deer like openings and edges and openings. So you had logging operations. You had tons of hard mass crops, you know, oak trees and all. Uh, you had a lot of agriculture. Even up through the upstate, you had agriculture. And you had an explosion of the deer population. We went to from, you know, relatively zero in the 50s to by uh, late 90s in the 2000s, we were at you know, 1.2, 1.3 million deer in South Carolina. And, uh, and you know, now then, then, then you had a decline, and we wonder why the decline. We figured out the coyotes had moved in, you know, 70 to 80 percent predation rate on fawns in the first six weeks. A fawn can make it to six weeks. He can survive. She can survive. But during those first six weeks, coyotes are responsible for almost 80% predation rates. And so you had that. You had loss of habitat, loss of all that um, prime habitat. You know, we went from not, you know, and we started cutting hardwoods and replanting with pines. And, the, you know, pine is a sterile environment to a lot of wildlife after the first few years. Um, so it's uh it's there's the pendulum swing, you know, and all the time you know when the coyotes are first being so detrimental, DNR was recommending we need to kill more does, and we started finally shooting more does to thin the herd out, and then this time we were like, oh no, stop, stop, slow down, <laughs> and now we're trying to put more, we're trying to do more harvesting of bucks than does, and there was actually an article in Fox News the other day, uh. That for the, the about the the buck harvest in the United States, um, God, I have messed up again. I'm not used to this having to switch back and forth, so the music's going to be off on this segment too. But anyway, um, you know. So there again, we're we're back to it, and uh, the pendulum swing. <laughs> so, goodness gracious, alive. Anyway, uh, we got to move because I got, I've got two, four, six, seven, eight, nine. I've got, I've got nine minutes. So we're gonna this next one. I won't talk so much. Maybe y'all like that. But anyway, hang on. We'll. Uh, the voice is holding out pretty good, but I'm having fun with this. Hope y'all are enjoying it. Hope you watch the movie. So hang on. We'll be back on the other side of the break. All right, I'm not going to talk. My voice is, I can feel it starting to crack up. So I'm not going to talk a whole lot this segment. Uh, I'm going to listen to a few more clips of of Stars in the Skies with Steve Rinella. I'm trying to figure out where I am here. Let's see. Am I here? Uh... Roosevelt yep. shoots a okay. second buffalo, and his reaction to it is no longer the dance. His commentary about killing that buffalo is a reflection on this nearly gone and vanished species this noble beast and he has a conservation epiphany and that was a pretty important event Theodore Roosevelt gets shunted into the vice presidency in 1900 as a candidate on the McKinley ticket and then McKinley gets shot and all of a sudden, Theodore Roosevelt's the president. The 
the National Republican Party boss said, I told William McKinley it was a mistake to nominate that wild man. Now look, that damn cowboy is president of the United States. And his first message to Congress was on conservation. He adds 140 million acres to the national forest system. And in that process, Western District Congressmen from six Western states panic. They put a rider on an ag appropriations bill to prohibit him from setting aside any more national forests. He has seven days to sign in or veto that bill. In those seven days, he adds 16 million acres to the forest system, creates 21 new national forests, signs the executive orders creating those public states, and then he signs the bill forbidding him from ever doing it again. <laughs> That's leadership. One generation later, we have the Great Economic Depression, the Drought, and the Dust Bowl. In the depth of that despair, we have Franklin Roosevelt now president, and he calls the very first North American Wildlife Conference. This is what he told the hunters and the fishermen. He says, look people, if you want these resources, you're going to have to do it. And the wildlife conservation ethic begins to take root. They put through Congress the Pittman-Robertson Wildlife Restoration Act and has been fueling wildlife restoration for 80 years. The hunters that rose up in the wake of the market shooters rose up with a conservation ethic because it was essential. We wouldn't have hunting if that hadn't happened. Amazing story. 1900, you had the the first inklings of you know a conservation plan, and in the depths of the 30s depression, you had a an 11 percent tax levied on all outdoor equipment, ammunition, guns, tents, whatever, to fund conservation. And that conservation funding enabled stuff like restocking of deer, restocking of wild turkeys, wood duck boxes, a um, whole myriad of things. Palmetto Shooting Complex here in South Carolina. And you have that on the on the on the on the uh, fishing side with Dingle Johnson too, so it's not one side. All right, here uh, I think this next clip is is more about Pittman Robertson. I mean, I think it's worth considering that many of the animals that we see all the time used to be really rare. You know, if you go to places where those species don't have that cultural or economic value, um, over time they get crowded out. They're not there anymore. It happens all over the world. And it's not that way in the United States. We have not only public wildlife through the North American model, but public lands. Hunters pay for that conservation. The picture of hunting revenue in the U.S. Uh, is on both a state and a federal level. On the state side, you've got the sale of hunting licenses, tags, and stamps as the primary source of revenue for fish and wildlife commissions, and that's to the tune of about a billion dollars annually across the country. 
that is only paid for by people who are hunting. On the federal side, you've got, stemming from the Pittman-Robertson Act, uh, a federal excise tax on hunting equipment. So it only hits people who are buying hunting equipment. And that money gets put in the federal fund. And that fund is then distributed to these states, but only if they meet certain requirements, right? And the first requirement is that all the money that the states generated via the sale of hunting licenses, tags, and stamps has to be spent by that actual Fish and Wildlife Commission. It can't get diluted across the budget. It has to stay for Fish and Wildlife. And this is a cool part, too, is if that money is, uh, for whatever reason, not spent within two years, it gets reallocated to the Migratory Bird Conservation Act. In a holistic sense, it's a really, really tight structure. It's an example of pretty effective regulation, and it's cool to see the mechanics of how it all works. Yeah, there it is. And that's where my note should have been on the deer stocking program. You know, we see deer all the time. A lot of times we see them in the middle of the road where we don't want to see them. But that wasn't the case in, up through the 60s and 70s here, and at least in the upper part of the state. Say the coastal plain on up, you know, the fall line. Um, all right, we got two more. Hang on. I hunt many things in many places, but I feel best and most fulfilled hunting in places where it's physically difficult and a bit hazardous. I enjoy moving through nasty country. I like to climb. I don't mind suffering the cold. I like being in places where I have to struggle against obstacles. I could get a deer in other places and in easier ways, but intentionally handicapping our endeavors is one of those peculiar hallmarks of our species. In hunting, we refer to this system of handicapping as fair chase. Now, it's a slippery concept and that is hard to define in a way that everyone is going to agree on. But it has to do with evening the playing field between predator and prey. Diminishing, sometimes greatly, the certainty of the hunter's success. Many of these handicaps are codified by law. Weapons that can and cannot be used. Hours of the day that are allowable for hunting. Restrictions on age classes and gender of animals that can be harvested. But many hunters go at one better and add layers of personal prohibitions. Weapons they could use but don't. Age classes of animals they could kill but won't. Much of it is subjective. It's deeply personal. Hunting plays out in your head as much as it does out on the land. Your version of it needs to leave you feeling right. It needs to leave you feeling good about what you've done. All hunters need to find that line for themselves. Yeah, pretty, puts a lot on a hunter to find that. You know, I, I got a flintlock rifle over here. Patch, round ball, real black powder. Oh, by the way, GoX is back in existence. I mean, back in the fall of last year, Hogden Powder decided they weren't going to produce GoX anymore, which is our only manufacturer of black powder in the United States. Uh, press release came out first of this week that 
all the assets have been sold to another company. They were going to ramp up production, and GoX was going to be a brand and available again. They and they were gearing up for a lot of pent up demand from when it shut down last fall. So that's good news for you know traditional muzzle loaders and all like me. But yeah, I'll go whole season and not shoot that thing. And what's amazing after all that is three and a half or four months of carrying that thing around, and I don't hesitate going out and damp, maybe not pouring rain with it, but damp and drizzle and all that, and come the end of the season after it's over with, you know, you could pull the ball and, you know, pull the powder. A little bit of powder in the pan, shoot that thing, and it goes off every time. It's amazing. It's amazing. But that's that's hunters putting restrictions on themselves. All right, last one. The writer Tom McGuane has an essay about hunting in which he recounts a conversation where someone takes a hunter to task by asking him, why do you have to go and kill deer? Why do deer have to die for you? Would you die for deer? The hunter replies, if it came to that. The conversation illustrates that central paradox. You love animals, but then you kill some of them. When wrestling with it, I believe it's important to remember that many of our most influential conservationists had a love of hunting that inspired in them a desire to save the land and restore wildlife. My hope is that hunting will continue to do this, to inspire in people a sense of active ownership, active stewardship for the land, many generations into the future. And I'm not going to get to the last one because it's uh, going to run over time. I hope you'll I hope you take that for what it is. You know, it's uh, it's. As as we become more populated, we lose more and more habitat. It's going to be up to the hunters to figure out where we are. You know, what is our impact? Are we willing to limit ourselves more if that's what it's ne- what's needed? And I think we will. We've we've always risen to the occasion. We've always risen to the challenge. Um, and if you're not a hunter, you know, I invite you to become one. Just go. There are there are all sorts of programs out there, mentorships and everything. Go try it. It, it, it. Even if you just do it once, it will give you a whole new perspective on it. And um, yeah, that's all I'm gonna say about that. Uh, I, I had a, a huge calendar of events and and actually some other stuff. Uh, go to the Woods and Water South Carolina Facebook page. We mentioned this last show. We have a we have two three-day passes to see we you don't have to like the page or anything just tell us who you want to take and why we're going to pick a winner monday i hope you enjoyed it i had a good time my voice actually did better than i thought it was so as always make time to get out there take the back roads when you can and uh, don't forget that camera see you back here next week or woods and water south carolina
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.